Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Drayton Bird. Drayton is an internationally published author and owner of Drayton Bird Associates, a direct and online marketing agency and consultancy. Uh, Drayton, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves as well. Um, normally, we would dive straight in with the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your business interests? Well, my reaction throughout my life has always been blind panic. <laughs> followed by uh, thinking about it and then getting down to it. And I'm old, so I've lived through previous recessions or nothing like this. So I did uh, panic blindly. (laughs) And after I panicked blindly, uh, I thought, well, what what have I got to do? And I'm very keen on measurement. So I thought, well, everything seems to indicate that um, things are going to be 20% down. So I thought, well, what do I have to do? I have to get 20% better. And in my business, uh, I focus very much on communicating extremely frequently with a list of people and going on social media. And and I really ratchet it up, <laughs> if possible. Um, I actually send out emails to my list, which is from all over the world, uh, seven days a week. Um, which may astonish you, <laughs> but it works. And it works because you never know when somebody is going to be interested. And the challenge is, are you able to send out things that are interesting? And I started looking much more at uh, things like LinkedIn, which is now incredibly popular. Um, and just putting out more stuff. I, I started working much harder. Um which, considering I'm over 80, is <laughs> quite a challenge. Well, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it, yeah. And it's, I thought, well, I've, I've lived through I lived through a period in my 40s when I was I was actually lived under a false name for seven years because I owed so much money to the Inland Revenue. And I thought, well, if I can I survive that, so I can probably survive this. <laughs> Um, when when you sort of are so sort of drawn into the hectic world of running businesses, can it be quite difficult to just sort of switch off when you need to, even when you get to retirement age and you just sort of want to just keep going? I've never I've never wanted to retire. And people say to me, "Why don't you retire?" I enjoy what I do a great deal. I'm busy writing two books at the moment, um, so I've no interest in retiring. And I've never understood golf. <laughs> and, so I really love, I love it and thinking about sort of leadership just on a little bit more of a broader sense um, what was sort of the big inspiration and influence on you at an early age as you sort of ventured into your business career and thought that sort of going into business for yourself was going to be the way forward for you well I was very fortunate um, I, I built a business up in this in the early 80s late 70s earlier and I sold it to Ogilvy and Mather, 
very large advertising group and became very friendly with David Ogilvy, who probably the most, the best known advertising man in the world. Uh, and I learned a lot from watching him. And I learned a lot from <laughs> interactions with him, actually. I remember he, he came into my office one day in Soho and he said, what exactly do you do, Drake? And he said, you're not the chairman, you're not the managing director, you're not the creative director. What do you do? I said, I'm in charge of entertainment, David. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, my job is to make sure that people come in early and leave late and enjoy the intervening period as much as possible. You can't do it yourself. Um, so I, I think the, the key to leadership is to make people want to follow you uh, and enjoy following you. Uh, Ogilvy was incredibly good at getting the most out of people. And when he got a new office manager anywhere in the world, uh, they were sent a set of Russian dolls. Uh, you know, they call them a trusca, I think, with seven dolls with a tiny one, in the big one at the outside and a tiny one in the middle. And when he got to the tiny one, uh, David had left a note. It said, if we hire people who are smaller than ourselves, we'll end up a company of dwarves. If, we're high pe- if we hire people who are bigger than ourselves, we will end up as a company of giants. Um, I spent a lot of time with Ogilvy May because eventually I was the worldwide creative director of Blah Blah Blah. Mm. Um, so I used to go around the world looking for talented people. And to me, uh, the business of business depends almost entirely on your ability to find talented people and motivate them. Um, and that's what I used to spend my time doing. So I would, I would go to, say, New Zealand and find out that the guy running the office in New Zealand was fed up with New Zealand. And, I, and that, in that particular case, I got him a job in South Africa and then he, he, he went to uh, Thailand. So my business was all about making sure the messages we sent out for our clients were effective, uh, making sure our people were getting the most out of their lives, and also making the clients happy. And it's like a virtuous circle. Um, very, it was very interesting. I think um, I used to watch Ogilvy very carefully to see how he led. He's a very, very interesting man. Um, and I used to ask everybody, um, why is he so good? And I remember having lunch in New York with the, the then chairman of the company. And I said, what makes David so amazing? And he said, well, he said, I'm pretty determined. He said, if I try something and it doesn't work, I'll keep going for a couple of years, maybe three years, uh, uh, before I give up. He said, but David never gives up. <laughs> he will keep, mm. He'll keep going for 20 years. So I think determination is not only the key to leadership, but it's also the key to surviving something like this. I mean, it really isn't uh, impossible for somebody who looks at their business carefully to say, okay, I need to get 20% better. How can I get 20% better? That's the other thing that people, I think, fail to do. They fail to set specific targets. We have to get 20% better. Uh, As the great... uh, uh, a great authority said that uh, <laughs> measurement is the secret, of, uh, is the secret of, of success. You know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So I spend all my time measuring it, and I think anybody in a pickle now should measure and measure every element within their business and say, 
can we make this 20% better? Can we answer the phone 20% faster? Can we be more helpful on the phone? Can we greet people more effectively? I had a niece, I still have a niece actually, who used to run the most successful body shop in uh, the West Coast of America. And she told me the secret of her success is very simple. She said, if somebody, one of my people didn't talk to somebody who came in within 30 seconds, they were in trouble. Yeah. So it's all about measurement. There's nothing. Mm. It's, it's measurement, uh, determination, and knowing what you're doing yeah, and not giving up. Of course, that persistence, that perseverance is so, so important, particularly during a time such as this. And as somebody, of course, who specialised in, well, probably still specialised in seeking out talent that's out there, do you think that just the ability to be a leader within your profession is something that you are born with to an extent? Or can you learn how to be good at what you do? Well, I think you can learn anything, can't you? Um I made a note. I made some notes uh, before this conversation, and I thought, "What can I? Who can I think of as, as being a great leader?" And obviously, the person I thought of first was the chap I've been talking about, David Ogilvy. But I then, because I'm very interested in history, I looked at great soldiers, for instance, and I was curious about what they thought mattered. So, when the Duke of Wellington was asked. Uh, for the secret of his success. He said nothing about strategy or tactics. He just said attention to detail. Um, when Marlborough, who probably was an even better general, uh, won his greatest battle, Blenheim, uh, he did it partly because he managed to get to the battlefield before the French expected him to, and he made sure that everybody, all his soldiers, had fresh boots and a meal when they got there. So very often... The things that matter are not big-sounding phrases and talk about strategy and this. They're incredibly simple things. Um, and I think people underestimate that. They really do. If you've got a business, believe me, how fast you answer the phone makes a big difference. How fast you reply to an inquiry makes a big difference. How precise you are in guaranteeing that you will do what you do makes a big difference. How quickly you respond to complaints will make a big difference. All these things matter. And they're all things that people who talk vague waffle about leadership really don't talk about very much at all. Partly, I think, because a lot of the people who purport to teach leadership have never led anyone. The experience is a great teacher. There was a, the, uh, <clears throat> as Daniel Defoe wrote, the, the mariner to sail with us, he has been shipwrecked. You've got to have suffered yourself to... to to understand what matters and what doesn't matter to people. Mm. Absolutely. Experience is um, absolutely vital. And um, it's also that ability to sort of get onto an equal footing with people and be able to motivate them as well, isn't it? And sort of harness that kind of close knit sort of feel, I suppose, because without relating to your team, you can't sort of really get the best out of them. Can you? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I really did try when we, we, we built our business from nothing. We were all broke. Um, and uh, we sold the business or I sold the business uh, seven years later uh, for an awful lot of money and it was mostly by making people happy (laughs) and knowing what we were doing and also very very important we did something that nobody else did without boring you about the business of advertising and direct marketing there are many many ways in which you can speak to people Uh, you can email them you can run commercials you can 
talk to them on the telephone. You can go and make speeches. You can write articles. We did the lot. Nobody else did the lot. So it's a bit, again, it's a bit going back to strategy. You know, if you're the, the, the English speak the French at Cressy in, in 1215 or was it 1315 because they had the strongbow and the French didn't. So understanding all the weapons that are available to you in your business is incredibly important. Um, incidentally, I remember somebody I used to work with years ago started a thing about uh, business, which essentially was about motivating staff. And uh, she discovered that if you had a system in, in, in place to motivate your staff, to reward your staff, on average, uh, you were likely to end up after three years uh, 70% more profitable. So you always have to think, you know, these are the people that are going to make it happen for me. I can't do it myself. Um, I've got to make them. I think I used to think I'm going to entertain them. I'm going to make them love me. I used to take them on crazy jaunts all over the country. Um, I always remember what, one of my people was, was married to a lawyer. And I remember taking them all down to a, a place on, on the coast. And this young lawyer was, I remember, climbing up the side of this building <laughs> to get into a window. That man is now a high court judge. <laughs> it was all part of a frolic. <laughs> it should be fun. Mm, it is um, very <laughs> important that, to make things fun. Absolutely right. And I completely agree with uh, where you're coming from there. Um, just for those younger aspiring leaders that may well be tuning into this um, as well, one thing I did want to ask Straighten is based upon all the experience that you've accumulated over the years, what would your message be to them to really get them started on the road to success? Well, there is a lovely old story about the, um, the the guy who was in New York asking for the way to Carnegie Hall. I get to Carnegie Hall. And a, a, a passerby said, practice. Um, I would say study. Um, even before I got my first job in advertising, I'd read five or six books on it. Um, and I still study. I still, every single day, I'm looking for ideas. Um, if you know more, you can do more. If you know more than the guy next that you're competing with, you will beat the guy. Uh, you're competing with as long as you apply what you know. But most people don't study. Um, they don't read books. In fact, book reading has, uh, has gone down. Yet uh, you you take in knowledge for better by reading than you do by looking at something on the internet. You have to study. And then you have to practice. And I think that's um, incredibly important. Don't give up. Don't give up. Never, never give up. Um, and also remember where the money comes from you think the money comes from a bank account it comes from a person um, Alexander Pope the poet said uh, the proper study of mankind is man I spend a lot of time studying people uh, I once did a survey amongst my list and said what do you think is the most popular sport in the world some said football, some said cricket, and so on. And I said, no, it isn't. It's watching people. And that's where the money comes from. There was, in fact, a very good, an old joke about a bank robber in New York who kept on being caught. And eventually, uh, a New York police detective said, why do you keep robbing banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. So the money is with people. Therefore, studying people. 
if you're starting a business, look at people. Ask yourself, is there something they're missing that I could provide? Then study the other thing that, that dominates things, which is competition. Who else is trying to do this? Is there anything they're not doing that I could do? Very, very important. And I, I wrote a book which was 38 years ago, I think, which is called Common Sense Direct and Digital Marketing. And in one of them, right at the very beginning, I said, an American once said, find out what people want and need and give it to them and you'll get rich. And that's all you have to think about in terms of you know what you should be doing. Is there something that people want and need? Very often from your own experience, you find you're not getting something you want. Uh, could you provide it to other people or other people who feel the same way as you? It's a very interesting subject. Mm. It's hugely important, isn't it, to study, as you say, because even when we are in leadership roles, we are never a finished product. We are still learning. We're still developing. And people would do very, very well to remember that. I, don't, I personally don't really see myself as a, as a leadership role. I just sort of see myself as a guy who happens to have ended up running businesses. Um, and I think the part, the, the minute you start puffing up your chest and saying, I'm a leader, you're in trouble. I think the minute you start thinking you're important in any way whatsoever, uh, you're in trouble. One of the things that motivated me throughout my life from a very, very early age was uh, learning that Pompey was leading an army at the age of 16. And I thought, well, there's not much hope for me. You know, if somebody was that good, I've just got to try hard. I've got to, and I've got to understand the context. And I must never, ever for one minute start thinking I'm important. And that's, the, that's a huge, huge problem. There is a big, uh, there is a culture now of making uh, the insignificance seem more important than it is. Um, language is losing its meaning you know um, things are inflated beyond measure it's not good don't inflate things don't inflate yourself uh, don't inflate your importance be modest um, very interesting and just well, before, it is to me anyhow. <laughs> it is very interesting, absolutely. Um, what we're all about here at the Leaders' Council is chronicling the realities of leadership. It is indeed a very fascinating subject. And just before we do sort of wrap things up on today's programme, just because I am conscious that we are running short of time, I would like to talk about yeah, yeah. the future, Drayton, just because um, we know um, from the Prime Minister's announcement just last week that we're going to have to continue to adjust to what is being called the new normal in how we live and how we work. But over this next 12 months, during which hopefully we will leave this dreaded virus behind forever. What is it that you're really <laughs> hoping to achieve at your businesses and where do you see yourselves being in 12 months' time? I'm, I spend much of my time um, thinking who should be running the business. Not that I'm capable of running anything. I've tried to avoid trying to run and run. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about immediate priorities uh, where do we get new clients from? How do we do a better job for the clients we've got? Um, and I spend a lot of time really sort of trying to make sure that when I'm gone, um, it will continue to flourish. Um, very, very important. And I have childish things in my mind. You know, I sort of think, well, okay, my, my, my it wasn't my first, but my second book has been selling for 37 or 38 years now. 
And I think if I can make it, if it keeps going for 100 years, even though I won't be there, I will be happy because I, I will have helped a lot of people. And I do get a lot of people who drop me lines saying, oh, I was reading your thing and uh, it's very helpful. I get messages from people virtually every day about the advice I give in my emails. And that's good. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel, well, in the words of the the great song by Sir Harry Lauder, what, 110 years ago, um, my living has not been in vain. I think that's what you ought to think about yourself. Mm. Have you made a difference? You know, but that's all I think. I say, I think, can I, can I lead the business in such a way that it will continue to make a difference? That's, that's what I think. Mm. And it's a wonderful ambition, absolutely, just to have made a real tangible difference in somebody's lives. I think it's so, so admirable, Drayton, for sure. And actually, just given how enlightening it's being having you join us on today's programme, I actually think at some point in the next few months, it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto our show, just to see how things are coming along and what's gone on in the time between. Oh, yes, I'm very happy, because I do spend a lot of time thinking about what I've done, what I've done wrong, what I could have done better, uh, the few things I've done right, or the little things I've noticed. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in at the moment is the tremendous... Uh, everybody's uh, crazy about digital media, and people are forgetting there are other media. Are the only clients I'd really like my client copy for is a, a charity. Um, they they wrote to me the other day saying they I'd got I wrote a, a big dry mouth piece for them, which got between fifteen and twenty five percent response, and a hell of a lot of money. Um, no email could do anything could do a hundredth as well as that. You know? mm. So I'm always thinking about the media that we're using and are we using them wisely, and are we being blindsided by the rise of the digital media? Mm. It is incredibly important to think about, isn't it, for sure. Drayton, yeah. it's been absolutely wonderful welcoming you onto the show today to share your take on leadership. And in the meantime, until we do hopefully speak again, uh, most importantly, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well, because there are still many different ways in which this could ultimately play out. Oh, yes. Thank you. It was a pleasure to welcome Drayton Bird, owner of Drayton Bird Associates, onto today's programme. And I would reiterate that last message to every single one of our listeners today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Uh, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett is a gentleman who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his time as Prime Minister and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. 
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become 
the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.